Welcome to a special edition of The Illumined Heart with your hosts Kevin Allen and Steve McMeans. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Illumined Heart radio program. September 2nd marks the 25th anniversary of the repose of one of the most well-known and respected American-born converts to the Eastern Orthodox Church. We know him as Father Seraphim Rose, a man many believe will one day be canonized a saint in the Orthodox Church. As a seeker of truth, a prodigious writer and translator, a spiritual struggler, and a monk and priest of the Eastern Orthodox Church, he has influenced countless numbers of seekers and Christians all over the world through his books, translations, and articles. And for this special commemoration, Illumined Heart co-host Kevin Allen visited St. Herman of Alaska Monastery, the monastery Father Seraphim co-founded in the Northern California forest of Platina, California, now under the jurisdiction of the Serbian Orthodox Church. He conducted three interviews with two of Father Seraphim's spiritual children. Kevin found Father Seraphim's monastery to be a priceless jewel of Orthodox monasticism in America. The interview that follows is part one of the three-part series, this one with Father Seraphim's biographer, legacy keeper, and spiritual child, Higher Monk Damascene. It is titled, Father Seraphim Rose, Spiritual Father. If you'd like information on the books published and distributed by St. Herman of Alaska Monastery, their website is www.sthermanpress.com. Now we take you directly to Father Seraphim Rose's cell, where Kevin Allen conducts his first interview. Father Damascene, thank you, first of all, for um, being my guest on the Illumined Heart Radio program. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, it's a special blessing and an honor to me and hopefully by extension to our listeners to be conducting this interview on the personal reminiscences that you have on Father Seraphim Rose in his actual cell, which is now your actual cell. And just describing it, we're out in the wilderness, uh, looks like a old Russian forest and, and the cell is, we we're discussing this, what about, would you say about 12 by 10? Mm -hmm. To use the word rustic would not be stretching the word. Not at all. Was this actually hand-built by Father Seraphim himself? Yes, it was hand-built by Father Seraphim in 1975. And the wood that was used for the cell was taken from old, abandoned miners' cabins from about 100 years earlier. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing to us to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, before we begin discussing your, your first and obviously pivotal and, and significant meeting with Father Seraphim Rose in 1981, just a little bit about your background. Um, you you write that you were raised a Christian in the loose sense of the word? Yes, I was uh, raised in and out of uh, Protestant churches going uh, growing up. Uh, my parents would take me to church uh, sometimes, in, uh, so it was very sporadic. Uh, my best experiences of uh, Christianity growing up and the most uh, meaningful for me uh, were at a YMCA camp. Uh, near my hometown of Fresno, where uh, the uh, Christian faith was uh, imparted to me by the counselors. And that was during the early 70s, during the Jesus movement, and some of these young people were very much on fire with 
preaching the gospel and so on. And so that really was a mm. uh, the most meaningful experience of Christianity. But in college, uh, excuse me, rather in high school, I turned away from uh, Christianity and uh, partly uh, through the influence of a zoology teacher who was very anti-Christian, very pro-evolution. I uh, began to delve into other religions. I started looking into Eastern religions, got involved with Zen Buddhism. I was practicing uh, Zazen, Zen meditation regularly. I went to a Sashin in Los Angeles Zen Center. And uh, then my, uh, by the time I was in college, my first year of college, my foray into Zen Buddhism was really reaching a dead end. I really felt unfulfilled, uh, felt empty inside. I was looking for something more, wanted to return to Christianity, but I didn't want to return to the Protestant Christianity in which I was raised. I found it too superficial, uh, too worldly. It, didn't have, really, it lacked an ancient tradition, a mystical uh, practice, discipline. And, uh, and then I encountered orthodoxy in, uh, in college through a group of uh, students on the campus who had an orthodox fellowship, most of whom were converts. And it was uh, these students uh, who invited Father Seraphim Rose to the campus. And among the students in that college fellowship, I should say, are, are Abbot Gerasim, our current abbot of our monastery, and also Abbot Jonah of the Monastery of St. John in Manton. Father Jonah Puffhausen. Right. Mm -hmm. And you were about 19, 20 at that time when you first encountered Orthodoxy and Father Seraphim? I was 19, yeah. At the University of California, Santa Cruz? That's correct. Okay, and, and he gave two lectures there. He being Father Seraphim Rose gave two lectures there. Yes. Do you, yeah. do you remember what the lectures were about? Yes, I remember. In fact, they've been recorded and, and published, both of them. The first one was a talk called Signs of the Coming of the End of the World, which we've published in the Orthodox Word. The second one was called God's Revelation to the Human Heart, which we published as a separate book. I've, I've read that. That's a wonderful one. In fact, my lovely Protestant evangelical um, sister-in-law reads that book uh, uh, regularly. It's a been a great joy to her. Were these lectures well attended? Yes, uh, the, the talk he gave uh, the first night uh, on uh, the signs of the coming of the end of the world was a general lecture for a general audience. And, uh, of course, the Orthodox people on the campus attended, but also Orthodox people from the uh, from other parts of, of California came. Uh, and uh, and other non, non-Orthodox people came for the lecture as well. So the University of California Santa Cruz Religious Center was, was filled with people that night. Hmm. And then the next day, he gave a talk for the World Religions in the U.S. class, which I was attending. And that's where I first encountered Orthodoxy in that class. You were a religious studies major at that time? I was an undeclared major, but yes, I, it, religious studies was my main uh, my main subject, gotcha. my main interest. So obviously, your motivation was more personal than academic, is what I'm hearing. Oh, absolutely. You were searching for something, the connection to the ancient Christian faith, a deeper, more mystical experiential faith. Yes, uh -huh. and I had been attending Orthodox services before meeting Father Sarah. Oh, you had? Yes. Uh -huh. Through your interactions with now Father Jonah and now Abbot uh, Gerasim. Yes, uh -huh. okay. I would go to church with them. Gotcha. But I was still sitting on the fence. I had not made a final decision to become Orthodox. Well, my, my question, which I was going to follow up on, were you still involved with Zen right then? I mean, were you going to these services and then going back and sitting Zazen? And, and, uh, or did that end and you were now searching? I was searching, but the uh, I still had some baggage left over from the the past, and still kind of working through some of these things. Because before 
I encountered orthodoxy, I was thinking that the idea of a personal God was really a, a lower understanding of God, which really came out of people's holding on to their egos, and that the, the highest understanding of the absolute was an impersonal absolute. And uh, I was kind of work, still working through that 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 idea. And I had I had read something in Archimandrite Sophroni's writings, his book His Life Is Mine, that was uh, had a very profound impact on me, talking about that the impersonal uh, concept of, of deity uh, was actually an experience of the non-being from which we've come, and that the true understanding of God, the highest, fullest understanding of God, is God as person, as I am, who's revealed Himself as I am. Uh, so that 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 helped me, but I had still not kind of worked everything through. And secondly, I had really not found a spiritual father. I had not f found somebody that I felt that could guide me and lead me into the faith. I had found peers, you know, in the college, but I had not found a, a person that I could look to, look up to as a spiritual father. And in Father Seraphim, I found both things that I was looking for, both a, a person who had experienced both Eastern religions, even Zen in particular, and also Orthodoxy, who, who spoke about Eastern religions, about Zen as, as a person who knew about them, as a person who had been in the inside. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, reading a book was very helpful, but that wasn't enough. I needed a person, and Father Seraphim was that person. And also in Father Seraphim, I found that spiritual father that I was looking for. So that was really, there's no question, but that was the hand, obviously that, that was the hand of God, uh, your, your encounter with him. I want to come back to the impersonal God, because you had a, question or questions that you asked Father Seraphim, and we want to hear the answer to that, but but I do have one I want to ask first, and that is, um, were these lectures, did these, did these lectures hit you like a ton of bricks, or was it an accumulation process um, where it started with these lectures and sort of where God was leading you and, and evolved, or, or were these lectures in your in initial encounter with Father Seraphim world and life-changing from the get-go, so to speak? They were life-changing, uh, pivotal, uh, or catalysts for me. Uh, but it was, as I said, it wasn't as if I didn't know about Orthodox and then suddenly discovered Orthodoxy through the lectures. I had already had some b the background, yeah. attended some services, and uh, the, the 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 one one really pivotal experience in, in my life, of course, was my first attendance of an Orthodox service because I had read some Orthodox books, but it was only in attending the Orthodox service that I really sensed the otherworldliness, the ancientness, the the antiquity, the mystical reality of the Orthodox Church and its and its and its worship. So I'd had these experiences, but Father Father Seraphim was the meeting Father Seraphim and attending those lectures was the. It, it did hit me in a, in, in, as a ton of bricks in the sense that at that point I made my final decision to become Orthodox. Well, you did. For me, for me, after that meeting Father Seraphim, there was no turning back. It was I I knew. In fact, I remember that night after he I attended the first lecture when I first met him. I remember running to my to the my uh, my friend on the campus who in the, in the he was in the same dorm as as I was and I had met him on my first day and when I had come to Santa Cruz he was a follower of Yogananda Catholic background Paramahamsa Yogananda Paramahamsa Yogananda right mm -hmm. yeah self realization fellowship right. he was practicing the Kriya Yoga and we were, I was sure. doing my Zen he was doing his Kriya Yoga we were kind of fellow seekers on on the path we had both come from Christian backgrounds but we were looking at Eastern religions. And I remember uh, that night after Father Seraphim's lecture, I went to him and I said, "You know, you got this is the man. You have to meet this man." You know, he ended up he never came, and he's I think he's still doing that. But but uh, I just remember I, I'm saying this because I I just it recalls how what a profound impact he had on me. Yeah. What was it about <clears throat> him that stood out so much? I, I you mentioned that he, this was someone for you. 
who knew the insides of some of the areas where you were struggling, the Eastern, the impersonal God, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh-huh. But, he, but he was a man. He was flesh and blood. What was it about him that stood out? There was a few things. Uh, I wrote about this in the Father Seraphim's biography. In fact, many of my reminiscences of Father Seraphim were in the biography. Some, uh, I just talk in the third person. I just mentioned things he told me. Other, his, other his, life, his life and work. His life and works, right? Uh, and there's, an, there's also the chapter called Santa Cruz where I actually go into the first person and describe my, my first experience of him. A few things uh, struck me. First of all, uh, I sensed that he was... I, and I, I don't, don't think I really could articulate this at the time, but I sensed that he was somehow dead to the world, dead to himself, dead to his ego. He was dying to himself. He didn't have any... He was not putting himself forward. He was like a, a selfless person. It's like a selfless, selfless servant. He was only imparting Christ. He was. I remember he was sick at the time. He was sniffling. He was. Look, he was. He was tired. But he looked like he was. You had the sense that he was a man who was sacrificing himself, not just because he was sick, which is the whole, the whole um, impression that he made. Is a man who was totally had totally sacrificed himself for Christ. Empty. Empty. And he yeah. speaks about that self-emptying in some places too. Yes. Yeah. And I had, a, I had, you know, I was a spiritual seeker at UC Santa Cruz in, in 1981. So you, you can imagine, I've already, I've seen many different religious teachers. You know, I'd met Sufis, I'd met Tibetan Buddhists, you know, and Hindu everything, gurus you know. And... Yeah, and I'd, I'd had, so I had, I knew about these spiritual seekers. Father Seraphim stood out. Huh. And also he stood out, of course, even in terms of Christian people, because he was somehow, so there was something very special about him. And the second thing that I noticed that he, that I that I sensed about him is that he was he had this w- tremendous wisdom, this piercing discernment that I'd never counted with in anyone before. He just kind of cut through everything, you know, a question, and he just gave the cl- clear, insightful answer. And uh, and uh, he was without any extreme. You know, he's talking about a very volatile subject, the apocalypse. But he was he wasn't he wasn't going on either stream either. People saying, "Oh, don't worry about it. It's never apocalypse. Never 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 going to happen." Uh, or the other extreme is people getting having this apocalyptic fervor. He was very, very uh, balanced. Uh, but but besides that, I sense that he had this wisdom from from God, and he, I, I sense he was very intelligent, very learned. But he wasn't showing off his his uh, his intelligence or his learnedness. He was very humble, presenting it very things very clearly, simply for for every everybody. But I and I sense that he was. Is as intelligent or more intelligent than any college professor I had, but he had this this spiritual wisdom that I had never encountered from anyone. Do you do you think that he was of genius level mentality if it had ever been tested? Because it seems to me from just the reading I've done that this was a very smart man gifted by God with unusual degree of intelligence. Yes, I definitely say he was a genius. In fact, that's what he was known as when he was in high school. They called him Eugene the Genius. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, in his yearbook, someone wrote, don't give Einstein too much competition. Isn't that something? His his grades were so far above other students that sometimes he had to be given the only A if they were grading on a curve. So, you know, he was, yeah, he was a genius. But the amazing thing about it is that when he became Orthodox, as he said himself, he said he, he crucified his mind. He said, you know, when I became a Christian, he said, I crucified my mind. And all the sorrows of that I've borne have only been a source of joy for me. I've lost nothing and gained everything. Mm. And so uh, when he, uh, especially when he became, when he started St. Herman Brotherhood, was writing in the Orthodox Word, he wrote his books and articles for everybody. 
He wrote on a, a, a level that every, everybody can understand. And he really avoided any kind of academic or, or uh, high-sounding academic yeah. prose. He, yeah. he uh, was... Uh, he was a missionary. He was a missionary, I mean, yeah. That, that seems to me that that's what comes through, not only with what he does, but with what everybody at this monastery does. I mean, even your writing is, you're writing about heavy stuff, but it's to com communicate truth to people, not to impress anybody with arcane or, you know, academic style of writing and so mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, at the end of his life, he was very encouraged by the fact that just the common man in America was becoming Orthodox. When he started becoming, when he became Orthodox, and when he was becoming Orthodox in the 50s and uh, and early 60s, really the only converts were intellectuals. They were the only ones that can kind of penetrate the ethnic barriers and get into there and learn other languages. And and so you, seekers like you that were used to fo dealing with and getting through foreignness uh -huh. to something that was important. You know, a lot of the, the intellectual converts were, they were just that, they were intellectuals. It was all in the head. So at the end of his life, Father Severin was very encouraged that it wasn't just intellectuals. Of course, intellectuals are still coming to the faith, but now it was also everybody. Mm. And uh, I felt that was a very positive development. Mm. Well, getting back to what you're saying about the impersonal God, you've told us a little bit about what some of the, the challenges were that you were dealing with, feeling that perhaps the impersonal God was a higher knowledge or and, and so on. And you read something of Akamandrite Sophroni that, that put that in, in, in context. What was it about the concept and the way that Father Seraphim explained it that spoke directly to your heart, which is how you de describe in your book what happened? What did mm -hmm. he say? Well, we have it actually on on tape. We're going to come out with it in the CD, but right now I have it. It's in, I have it in, in writing. It's in Father Seraphim's biography. I said, "Where does this concept of the impersonal God come from?" And his his answer was as follows: That concept comes from people who don't want to meet the personal God. And I, once again, I wanted to emphasize this is very simple. That like straight cuts right through it. He's not. He could have given me a very verbose. Uh, learned answer. That's but he a gave, great answer. He gave a, just a very clear answer. Just, and it just, a person, the people don't want to meet the personal God. Okay, and then he goes on to say, because he definitely requires things of one. That's why they don't want to meet him. He says, I think that in many cases, when people say they have this experience, it's some kind of illusion, some kind of wishful thinking. This is very much helped by the feeling of Zen meditation in which you quiet yourself down. And if you haven't r really got anything deep inside of you, that wants to come out, you can get yourself into some quiet state and think you've met God or whatever you're looking for. It's a kind of spiritual immaturity. But I think that if there's anything passionate inside of you, finally, you'll go crazy and break the bonds. And that put it all in, in, in context. Mm -hmm. Would you say mm -hmm. that that broke the spell of the impersonal God when he after he said that? I can't just say it was this one paragraph. It was the, it was Father Seraphim himself. Yeah. The whole, the whole, it was the, yeah. everything, everything yeah. together. Yeah. Did did Father Seraphim actually um, catechize you? I, I know you. I believe you became Orthodox a actually after his repose. No. Well, I became Orthodox while he was dying. On his, I was baptized when he was on his deathbed. Okay. Did did he catechize you? Was he? Uh, yes, he was. Yeah, he did. Yeah. What tell tell us what that was like? I mean, again, you you have, you've told us some by by just telling us about about him. But if there's anything else you can add to that. In terms of how he catechized or the impact of that, and not everybody gets catechized by a by a Father Seraphim Rose. Yes, well, he didn't actually give me catechumen classes, you know. He, but uh, I would come up to the monastery as often as I could when I was going to college, and any any break I could get, and uh, and would come and talk to him in the cell or elsewhere, and we would just talk about things. I would talk about the the papers that I had written, 
and he would read the papers, discuss those. He would ask me questions, you know, finding out, find out, you know, how I was coming along in my preparation to become Orthodox. Uh, just a, a few few things, and this goes back again to this: how Father Seraphim gave up his his intellectual elitism. Because before he was Orthodox, he was definitely an intellectual elitist. But I, when I was in a college, when I was in college, I was something of a intellectual snob myself. And and uh, Father, I, I remember I gave Father Seraphim a paper on uh, Immanuel Kant and his philosophy of on religion. And uh, Father Seraphim later I asked Father Seraphim, said, "Did you read the paper?" He says. Yes, I did it. He says it was a little bit over my head. <laughs> I didn't know that was you. I you you, you wrote that one in on third person, didn't you? And yes, yeah. So that was yeah. actually your story. Right, right, right. Okay, that that's a great story. Uh, as if it was going to be above his head, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's not. funny. And then I asked him about Kierkegaard because I'd written a paper on Kierkegaard, and I you know was ready to discuss you know these this big philosophy like you do in college you know sure. have this big philosophical deep discussion right, with right, somebody right. and Father Sarf, Sarf, of course knew Kierkegaard and he, he knew this philosophy. And his only com- comment about Kierkegaard was, says, I always felt sorry for him. Yeah. That was it. I was struck by that. And, and yeah. what did you take from, why, why was he sorry for him? Why would he have been sorry for him? Well, I knew about Kierkegaard's life. I felt sorry for him, too. Yeah. He was a person who was really seeking something deeper in Christianity, but he was in Lutheran uh, Denmark. And, uh, and so he could only go so far. He really was, I think he was really unfulfilled. Didn't have the tools. Didn't have the tools, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, about his catechizing me, one, one, one thing I'd like to mention is uh, just an example when he would ask me questions about my faith and so on and about my preparation for baptism. We were sitting right in this very cell and uh, right here, and he, he said, uh, have you, uh, do you know about the fasts of the church? And here I was, you know, into... You know, reading Vladimir Lasky's mystical theology of the Eastern Church. You know, studying about the divine darkness and apophatic theology mm-hmm. and all these big things and you know, these high, these very lofty theological uh, subjects. Father Seraphim was just asking me, "Do you know about the fast of the Church?" And I said, "Well, I know about uh, the Great Lent. I know there's a fast before Nativity of Christ, and I know there's some fast about Dormition before the Mother of God of the Mother of God." And he said, "Well, do you know about the uh, Apostles' Fast?" I said, no, I didn't know about the Apostles' Fast. I know about apophatic theology, but I did not know about the Apostles' Fast. He said, this is a very important fast of the church. He started explaining why this is an important fast of the church. And he said, someone calculated and found that there are more fast days in the year than non-fast days. He was trying to impress upon me that being an Orthodox Christian is, is means sacrifice. And it's not and he all was, up in your head. Not all up in your head. You, you have to sacrifice. And, you know, before you um, become Orthodox, you need to count the cost. You know, and know, you know, know, know what, what's required. An Orthodox Christian. Hmm. So he was he was real, maybe maybe as real as anybody you'd ever ever encountered before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, truly human mm-hmm. in the sense that we we speak of of that. Very down to earth. Yeah, yeah. Just bring it all down to earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, his his illness and his um, <clears throat> death came not very long after you met him at at UC Santa Cruz. How long actually was it? Well, I met him on May fourteenth, nineteen eighty one. And he reposed on September second, nineteen eighty-two. So yeah. that would have been about a year, little less than a year and a half. W- would you say you knew him fairly well by that point? Uh, well, you know, even Father Alexei Young, who you know knew Father Seraphim better than most people, uh, he was up here many times. You know, he said there was many things about Father Seraphim that he didn't know. You know, uh, you know, he was a bit of a mystery in some sense, but. Uh, I think that uh, 
considering the fact that I knew him for about a year and a half, I would say I knew him fairly well because, uh, <clears throat> as I said, every time I would come up here, he would be, he's my spiritual father. He was going to be my godfather, hmm. uh, and uh, he was the one who was preparing me for, for baptism. And I, I talked to him. I asked him about himself. You know, I asked him questions about, him, and, about and himself. Would he, and would he talk about himself? Yeah, he would, yeah. yeah. So not you know a lot of times monks will tell you, what does that matter? I, we, we don't talk about our, ourselves and our history. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He talked about himself. In fact, some of his, the things he told me about himself are in the book. Uh, and they're not mentioned in the first person because I just, you know, recording things. For example, I asked him uh, how he became Orthodox. And he said, well, there was a, I was in, you know, in studying uh, Eastern religions. And there was somebody at the my school who said, uh, you're studying Eastern religions. What You should study the Eastern side of Christianity, the Christianity that you, the religion you were raised in. And that's how he first went to an Orthodox church. Things like that, you know. And then he, uh, you know, I talked to him about classical music, and I said, uh, uh, you know, what's who's your favorite composer? You know, and he said, I know Bach is the greatest, but my fa favorite is Handel. He, he, I, I wrote a paper on it called the something called something about the delusion of self-deification, because this is I was still working through this concept of right. the impersonal God, and I found you know in, in the in Eastern religions or in like Sufism they they say that you know you are God. And you just realize your own your your own right. godhood. Hinduism too. Hinduism too, yeah. Cer certain forms of Hinduism. So, I uh, I told uh, talk, was talking to Father Seraphim about that, and he said that during before he became Orthodox, he even kind of experimented with that idea that he was not that he was God, but that he was the sole existent reality, called solipsism, I believe. And uh, and there's certain letters that he wrote where you can see that where he. He brings that that idea out. He, yeah. It wasn't something I see. I think he he actually lived with for a long time, but it's something he kind of considered. Yeah. Didn't you mention in the book that either he touched insanity or could have? Or, yes. Yeah. yeah. He was kind of experimenting in that yeah. realm. Yeah. He was yeah. trying to break through. As before right. he encountered the right, truth, right. he was in despair. Interesting. So he was trying to kind of break through to the other right. side, as they say. You know. Oh, which is a very Nietzschean. Yeah. Way to maybe pursue that, which of course does lead to insanity. Yeah, and yeah. self-deification, and, and he self was very much, you know, involved with the philosophy of Nietzsche, right? Mm -hmm. Which we'll we'll get to in our next interview yes. on his uh -huh. on his uh -huh. on his work. So his illness, I, I understand actually from one of the other brothers here when we were walking walking around that, that he actually was not a well man that he that he that he struggled with various physical illnesses. Um, so my question is that his the illness that finally caused his repose, the intestinal problem, did that come on suddenly? It came on suddenly, yes, yeah. Now he did tell the, our, our former abbot, Father Herman, that when uh, when he was younger, he had some kind of a stomach malady, and he thought he was going to die from it. And he prayed to the Mother of God, and he was he was healed. Uh, I don't know if there was any relationship between that and what what eventually took his life, but uh, actually, what what occurred was a clotting of blood to the intestines. It wasn't actually an intestines itself, and that caused multiple organ failure. Oh, I see. Yeah. And I was here at the time when he got sick and the whole period of his illness and his repose. You were here at the monastery? Yeah, right about the time he got sick. Right, yeah, that, that very time. <clears throat> I came up here to be baptized by him on the Feast of Dormition. And I missed the 1982 summer pilgrimage because I was in the Holy Land. Uh, but when I came back, I came to, to, to be and, you know, prepare for baptism with Father Seraphim. I remember coming to this cell and Father Seraphim was sitting out in front and and uh, Father Herman would always send me to talk to Father Seraphim, and so I would come. I came here. I had these questions about the scripture to ask him, and it was very hot at that time. And he was sitting out in front. And I asked these questions. He said, "I'm sorry, I really I can't, 
I can't concentrate now. I can't. I can't. I can't he couldn't answer the questions. Really, which it would be, so which would be unusual for him. Yes. Uh -huh. you, did uh -huh. you worry about him then? I mean, was that something where people thought oh, this is not good? At that point, uh, I was concerned. Yeah, and of course, we became more concerned as as days went on, yeah. and then finally, Father Herman told Father Seraphim he had to go to the hospital. He wouldn't have gone on his own. Well, I don't know what he would have done, if, yeah. but uh, he he was resistant at first. Yeah, he yeah. thought he just had some kind of a stomach problem, yeah. and uh, it was going to go away, like, I guess in the, as it had in the past. And yeah. but it was not a stomach problem; it was a circulation problem. Word. Is that something looking back that was treatable? Well, I've wondered that myself, and when I've had doctors come up to visit the monster, I've asked them about it. Yeah. And the most interesting conversation I had was with a Finnish doctor, a doctor from Finland. Who uh, we we talked at length about this, and we I talked about all the symptoms and what happened and so on. And he, this doctor was very familiar with this particular illness, and it's very rare. And he says that, and when it when it occurs, and this is what also what the doctors told told us when we took Father Seraphim to the hospital, when it occurs, you know, the damage is already done before the person goes to the hospital because it comes on so quickly. And uh, this one man, this Finnish doctor, said that he had a girl. I think she said she was nine years old who had the same problem. And he was able to keep keep her alive for a while, uh, but but eventually she died within I guess oh, really? within within a year. Yeah. Okay. So, and he was what forty eight when he only forty eight years so old. So he was a young man. Uh huh. R relatively. Yeah. Um, relatively. Yeah. yeah. Tough question. Um, but but can you share what losing such a significant figure in in your in your life you know was like? I mean, was it a shock where you were numb and? And just uh, you know, people grieve in different ways. I'm just curious as to how that, how that, what the experience was like. Can well, it was a tremendously powerful experience for me. Uh, uh, but it wasn't just grief; it was a whole experience of grace at the same time. I had just been baptized, and you know, I was Father well, Seraphim was supposed to baptize me under a mission, uh, but he was put in the hospital before that. So uh, Father Herman um, went and uh, baptized me up here in Beacon Gorge, and uh, then. I went to the hospital. Father Seraphim was lying in the hospital bed. He couldn't talk. His he had tubes in his mouth and a respirator. His he was he had tubes in his in his body too, and he had he was tied to the bed because he was convulsing with pain. And uh, he saw me come in with my white baptismal robe, and he he smiled and he squeezed my hand. So it was very of course it was very meaningful for me that he knew me recognized me as as a baptized Orthodox Christian. And he knew my new name, Damascene. You know, I took the name of uh, Saint John Damascene, which was connected with, with Saint Herman of Alaska, because the Abbot Damascene of Alam was the, the first, uh, the person who had the first life of Saint Herman compiled, and he was very close mm. to the monastery, the, his memory. So, um, so he, you know, he recognized me as Orthodox Christian. Later, he was uh, buried in my baptismal robe because he didn't have a baptismal robe. So uh, he, he was baptized in your. He was, excuse me. He was buried, I mean, he was buried in, my, in your my baptismal robe. robe. Yes. Uh huh. My my my, my my. Yeah. So the last communication with Father Seraphim was him squeezing your arm and acknowledging your your baptism. Yeah, he was looked in my eyes and smiled. Mm. He was he was at some point because of the medication he was you know his eyes were glazed over but at that point he was lucid and he could see clearly looking at me, but it was also very powerful because during those days. We would, you know, we would be serving liturgy in the hospital. It was a Catholic hospital, so we served liturgy. It was like the whole, all the heavens opened up. Everybody was cramped in this little chapel. Everybody sang that liturgy by heart, and then we'd give Father Seraphim Holy Communion. And I remember, <clears throat> I have a friend who's now a priest in the Orthodox Church, by the way. He was also part of that Santa Cruz Fellowship. It came a little bit later, 
And he was he was kind of like me. What before I met Father Seraphim, he was interested in becoming Orthodox. He thought of becoming Orthodox, he considering it, but hadn't made a decision yet. He still had some issues to deal with. He was there when we when uh, when we were giving brought Holy Communion to Father Seraphim when the priest I can't remember Father Herman or Father Alexi brought it to, to Father Her, to Father Seraphim, and uh, the uh, they're holding the gospel above his head. Uh, after they uh, and he. Used Father Seraphim exerted all the last all the last strength of his body to lift himself, and I, as I said, he was in this convulsing with pain. He lifted himself up to kiss the gospel, mm-hmm. and he would just he would be lying there, just you know, tears would be streaming down his face. He'd be looking up and into heaven and praying, and it was very moving. And people would be standing around the bedside and and crying and praying and singing the hymns of the church. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing was this very powerful experience, and. We was we were filled with grief, but it was a common grief. You know, we had each other. Everybody was together. It was not just people. Of the monastery it was all Father Seraphim's spiritual children, would come from miles around. We had Archbishop Anthony come, Bishop McTarry. Mm-hmm. So it was a very whole thing was a very powerful experience of grace. And then you know my baptism, receiving Holy Communion every day after that. Mm-hmm. So uh, yes, it was a it was cataclysmic, but it was, at the same mm-hmm. time there was it was filled with with grace. Mm-hmm. And obviously, um, you you've dedicated a sub- significant part of your of your of your life's work to communicating to the world who Father Seraphim was, what he was about, what he taught. So obviously, he's been an extra- extraordinarily significant figure in in, in your life. Uh, clearly, clearly so. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't think of anybody more significant. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what was the um, timeline on? deciding to become a monastic uh, you've you've told us and thank you for it uh, your journey and your conversion experience w- was it then that you started thinking about monasticism and how long did, did that take and where did father seraphim fit into that decision well after his uh repose uh i was at the monastery for some time after that and then i had to start school i went transferred to uc berkeley if you can imagine being baptized and then being thrown in UC Berkeley. So I was I went to school there, there for a year, and I uh, was looking into various life paths. And uh, and over the period of that year, monasticism became prominent in my in my mind. I uh, hadn't fully made a decision, but at the end of that that year, uh, I went up to the monastery to write Father Sermon's biography. Hmm. So I was going to write Father Sermon's biography, live in the monastery for the summer. And kind of see how it went, and and uh, well, the biography was not written until uh, uh, ten years later, <laughs> but because uh, it turned out to be such a big work. Uh, but um, at the end of the end, at the end of the summer, uh, the, some of the monks went up to Alaska to the island where Saint Herman lived in order to start the monastery there, and I went up with the monks. And at that point, I decided to be become a novice. Uh, of course, I hadn't made a full de- final decision to become a monk at that point. It was a trial test period, but I was made an, a novice on the Feast of Dormition um, in uh, on Monk's Lagoon, where Saint Herman lived, wow. in 1983, almost exactly a year after I was baptized. Wow. And I, I was I've been in the monastery ever since. Hmm. Is is the, is the novitiate being a, a novice sort of where you test out your vocation? Yes. Uh huh. So exactly. there's nothing they don't hold it against you if you decide during that period that you know what this is. Not not my my vocation. Right, and that's exactly okay. what that period is for. Gotcha, uh-huh. gotcha. I would have to assume that Father Seraphim's influence had something to do on your on your vocation to the monastic life. Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah, he was an example for me. He was my my model, my role model, even after after he died. 
Yeah. And of course, yeah, he was also uh, my heavenly intercessor. And we we began asking Father Seraphim's intercessions after he died. In fact, our the bishop, the spiritual father of the monastery, Bishop Nectari, uh, encouraged that. He said, uh, at the time of Father Seraphim's funeral, he told our abbess Bridget, you know, you you're praying for Father Seraphim, but also pray to him. And he wrote to the monastery the, the same same words. Huh. Also, the other monastery's other spiritual father, Father Spiridon, Archimandrite Spiridon, a disciple of St. John of Shanghai in San Francisco, he encouraged us to do mm-hmm. the same. Mm-hmm. And I remember also at Father Seraphim's 40th day memorial service, I was here, and Bishop McTarry was giving a sermon. And he said, uh, Father Seraphim is a righteous man, possibly a saint. And the translator was it. Should I say saint? Should I say saint? Bishop McTarry said, firmly, yes, saint. Really? Yeah. So it started very early. This, very early. This idea that he was a, a righteous man, a, uh-huh. a blessed man, one that, that could be a canonized saint at some point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would, would that, and, and I wanted to ask you about that, would, would that make Father Seraphim, if and when God decides, would that make him the first American-born Orthodox saint? Other than maybe Peter the Aleut, but it wasn't America as we know it then. It was still a province of Russia. Because Bishop Hawawini was not born in America. Bishop uh, St. John was not born in America. Right. What was about Father Yaakov Nesvetov? Was he born in America? I'm not sure. Seems to me he, I don't think he was, but he might have been. Mm. Well, okay. have, I'm not sure about that. But not many of them, if 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 and when. Yeah. 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 And they also in the Serbian church, there's another candidate for canonization, Archimandrite Sebastian Dabovic, who was an early missionary uh, in America, in fact, born in San Francisco. Mm. Do you personally consider Father Seraphim Rose uh, a, a saint? Personally. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Do, do you think that he'll be canonized? I believe he will because there's feel it among the people. I mean, that's how it's really determined in the church. You know, is the the Holy Spirit guides the church and guides the people in the veneration of of this of of a person. Maybe maybe as, as we start to wind towards the the end of the interview, uh, Father, you you could give us a feel for how, how does canonization happen? It's a, it's a different process, say, than the way the Roman Catholics canonize saints, which is very formal and juridical and all this. Uh-huh. How does it happen? Historically, uh, it's, it's more organic. You know, the, the the people proclaim him as a saint. The people uh, venerate him as a saint, uh, or him or her, and and the saint starts performing miracles after his repose, and uh, his presence is felt. And he's seen to be a heavenly intercessor. It's he confirms the fact that he or he or she is in the kingdom of heaven, and uh, and then the the bishops gather together and proclaim what the church has already the people have already uh, uh have already uh, established or confirmed so and the, the, the canonization yeah. is actually uh it's, it's a you you enter the the saint's name in the list of saints it's a uh, uh, that's that's actually what it is it's called a more, it's more precisely it's a you know the the person has entered into the, the into the list calendar of saints so they eventually would put their imprimatur on it but it's already been organically recognized, as you say. So yes. it's not that they decide in a vacuum or that anybody makes a formal petition or an application or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what, since we have multi-jurisdictionalism in, in this country, and that's another subject of conversation, um, which, which jur- jurisdiction would you, we're speculating obviously now, but which one do you think would be most apt to take the lead on it? Would be would it be the Russian um, jurisdiction, or 
I think so, because they're the most appropriate, because Father Seraphim was in the Russian church, in the Russian church abroad, Russian church outside of Russia. And now, of course, we know that the Russian church outside of Russia is in communion with a Moscow patriarchate. So, uh, and this, Father Seraphim has great, the, the, the much, there's much veneration of Father Seraphim in the church in, in Russia. In fact, maybe more so than anywhere else. Uh, Which is interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But now he's being venerated in in Greece. There's his, his life is in Greek, and many people venerate him in Greece. Also, in Serbia, in Serbia they already call him Saint Seraphim. In Serbia, it's even more it's more, it's more informal than el, el, other places because, uh, for example, Saint Nikolai Velimirovich was already called Saint Nikolai Saint Nikolai mm. uh, for many years before he was formally canonized by the Holy Synod of the Serbian Orthodox mm. Church. So they're already calling Father Seraphim mm. Saint Seraphim there in, in Serbia. And I, you, you bring this up, and I forgot about it. Um, I actually saw at least one, maybe more than one, um, photographs of uh, Father Seraphim um, on Ma- on the Holy Mountain on Mount Athos. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, kind of the gold standard, if you will, of you know monastic life. Uh, so obviously they think highly of of him there. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it's really not our place, it is, it being the monastery the Father Seraphim comes from. To promote him as a saint, you know, right. to like publish icons of him and so on. But if and but if if other people do it, that's fine. Yeah. Well, Father Damascene, one of the things you've mentioned about canonization and sainthood are are the miracles that 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 occur. Um, are are you aware of any such miracles that are attributable to to Father Seraphim Rose? Yes, there are several. Uh, we have uh, accounts of ten different miracles, posthumous miracles. Uh, in the last chapter of Father Seraphim's biography, Father Seraphim Rhodes' Life and Works, and other miracles have been uh, recounted in uh, past issues of our magazine, The Orthodox Word. Uh, and also other miracles have come to our attention since the publication of Father Seraphim's biography. Is there one that stands out that you that you might like to share with us? Well, the one, the more recent one, which has not been published yet in English, uh, comes from Alaska. There was a man uh, in Alaska, his name is Aram, and he... Uh, was a Pentecostal, and he and his wife, uh, and they have a, had a young son, uh, were very involved with the Pentecostal church. And they they knew of this St. Saint, Saint, Saint Innocence Academy in Kodiak, Alaska, where they lived. Uh, and they had a casual acquaintance with the, the dean and the students there, but they really didn't know much about the Orthodox Church at all, had no really direct experience of it, and had no uh, intention whatsoever of becoming Orthodox. But then when one day they went to St. Spruce Island, where St. Herman lived, in Monk's Lagoon, and they, they smelled a miraculous fragrance. They heard chants, monks' chants. Uh, nobody was there. Nobody was chant. there. The monks were, our monks were uh, many miles away. Uh, they also had an, uh, went to St. Herman's Spring. Uh, the lady had a terrible headache, and she drank from St. Herman's water, and it just went away like that. And they had these experiences there, and they really didn't know what to make of them because it was totally out of keeping with their Pentecostal experience and teaching. And then shortly after that, this man, Aram, he had a dream in which um, this uh, he was weeping in this dream, and there were he was these people from St. Innocence Academy around there in the, in the area, and there was this prayer shawl, what he called a prayer shawl. It looked to him like a pre- Hebrew prayer shawl, and he used that to wipe his, his, his face, mm-hmm. wipe his tears away. And then this man came up to him, and he looked like a priest or a monk. And he knew that this prayer shawl belonged to that priest or monk. And he started talking with him. And the priest or monk, whoever this was, said to the to Aram, he said, uh, You are to become Orthodox, and you are to become a priest. And the man Aram said, uh, 
Oh, I don't want to become a priest and wear one of those funny hats. <laughs> and, uh, and then he asked, at some point he asked this man, this priest or monk, says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Father Seraphim Rose. And never heard the name of Father Seraphim Rose before. So then the next day, he goes to St. Innocent's Academy, because this dream was such a powerful experience for him. And he talks to the dean. And he doesn't tell him the nature of the dream. Uh, he thought it would maybe seem a little bit too weird to the dean. But he asks the dean, he says, uh, uh, have you ever heard of somebody named Father Seraphim Rose? And the dean said, yes, of course. You know, the, the dean is a good friend of ours. He's been to the monastery many times. He pulled out, you know, pulled, you know goes to the... His, his library and gets a copy of Father Seraphim's biography in his books and shows it to him. And the man's totally stunned, of course. And uh, that began the path of this man to come, become Orthodox. And it was a big struggle for him because I said he was very involved in the Pentecostal church. And, uh, well, his his struggles were many. And uh, eventually he um, was able, he and his wife, you know, kept coming closer and closer to the church, getting more and more involved, doing daily prayers, started attending an Orthodox parish and uh, in the continental United States, and uh, eventually uh, became Orthodox. And now they're, they're baptized Orthodox Christians and very uh, dedicated members of, of the hmm. church. Is he, a, is he a priest yet? Not a priest, <laughs> yes. So uh, we don't know about that. In fact, we uh, have to be careful you know, to, to promote that because we don't want people to pressure him because of the dream. You know, right, it's, right, it's right. God's providence, whatever, yeah. whatever happens. But yeah. he, did, he has become Orthodox. And there are other cases of people becoming Orthodox through encountering Father Seraphim, through a heavenly visitation of Father Seraphim, either a dream like that or, uh, or uh, just a sense of Father Seraphim drawing them, you know, that uh, I've heard other accounts like that. So he hasn't stopped doing uh, his evangelistic and missionary work. Yes, he was, his, his life was dedicated to bringing uh, his fellow Americans into the Orthodox Church, and he continues doing that beyond the grave. Mm. Well, Father Damascene, this uh, this has been a fascinating interview. Thank you so much for it and for the invitation to come into his cell to, to conduct it. And uh, we'll continue with the other interviews a little bit later, but thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a special edition of The Illumined Heart, commemorating the 25th anniversary of the repose of seeker, struggler, writer, monk, and priest, Father Seraphim Rose. For more information on the books published and distributed by St. Herman of Alaska Monastery, visit their website at www.sthermanpress.com. That's www.sthermanpress.com. This has been a special presentation of the Illumined Heart and Ancient Faith Radio, your listener-supported Orthodox Internet Radio Connection. AncientFaithRadio.com.